We're in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, Moses, who speaks with God face to face, who has dialogue with God, not only hearing God's voice, but God befriends Moses to the point that he allows Moses to have conversation with him. Now, many of us have experienced God speaking to us. We have his word to us, so God speaks to us through the scriptures, through his word. Some people have dreams. I've never had a dream. If I ever had a dream that made sense, I think I would, I would consider that God speaking to me, but I don't. <laughs> God will speak to us through circumstances. And sometimes God will even speak to us in an audible voice. But I doubt seriously that any of us have ever had a conversation like Moses had with God. That face-to-face, friend-to-friend type conversation. The Jewish people, the Jewish religion, consider us Gentiles crazy to think that we could even call God by name, much less have a prayerful conversation with God. So we begin to see part of the reasons that Moses was so esteemed by Israel in his day, and even today, the Jews look upon Moses as a great prophet, a great leader, and the fact that he spoke with God is, is part of that awe they hold Moses in. It's interesting that on one occasion, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And Jesus didn't back away from that. He says, when you pray, say, even given the word, our Father who is in heaven. So Jesus instructed his disciples. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but he was teaching the disciples how to pray. But when you pray, say, our Father. We get to hold the living God in the close relationship as Abba, Father, and the Jewish people are even afraid to pronounce his name. What an amazing thing that is. So let's look at chapter 34 of Exodus. We'll look at the first nine verses here. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first one, And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning. Come up to the come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stones like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. And the Lord commanded him, and he took his hand, in his hand, the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. 
and, of course, sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Moses is instructed by God, bring up two tablets of stone like the first ones, the ones you threw down and broke, Moses, and I will rewrite the commandments for you. And then we have God, and he makes no apology whatsoever, describing himself, proclaiming his name, which is his character, to the people. And it's interesting, the same God that proclaims his name and his characteristics to Moses is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's our God also. He's merciful. He's gracious. And God looks upon us with mercy. And he looks upon us with mercy before he extends grace. Mercy must come first, then grace. Mercy is similar to what we would call pity. Uh, God having pity on us basically for what we are mortals, <laughs> then God reacting from his pity, from his uh, mercy, he gives us grace, unmerited favor, because, because he feels mercy towards us. You know, I never want God giving me what I deserve. The only thing I deserve, the only thing I merit, is judgment. All believers cherish, or should cherish, mercy and grace versus justice. Aren't you glad that God deals with you in grace and not justice? God is also long-suffering. God is not quick to become angry. God is not quick to cast us aside, and he was not quick to cast Israel aside, even though they sinned against him constantly in the wilderness. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, we went through the whole golden calf thing with Israel, and that was a very grievous sin. God calls it a great sin. It's a in-your-face disobedient sin by Israel, Yet God extends to them forgiveness, showing his mercy and grace. Sometimes I will look at the disobedience, the rebellion of some Christians, and marvel at God's long-suffering. And I don't have to look too far because I look at my own life. <laughs> Way too many years of self-indulgence on my part. Stubbornness, rebellion. Yet God has been long-suffering with me. And the older I get, the more I think I appreciate that. But our God abounds in goodness and in truth. God overflows 
with goodness. And God is always truthful with us. And I like that, for God cannot lie. You'll never be deceived by God whatsoever. But look at the boundaries that God places upon himself here. Keeping mercy for thousands. Keeping forgiveness of iniquity. Forgiving transgressions and sins for thousands. Sometimes it's hard for us to forgive ourselves and we kind of transfer our guilt feelings over to God saying, and we beg for mercy and we repent time and again, but he's quick to forgive us. But sin has three basic categories. There's iniquity. To commit iniquity has a perverseness about it. It's a depravity, a basic uh, weakness or a basic wickedness in our flesh. Transgression is violating of God's law, and we can even transgress through ignorance. Uh, And that's sort of different for us. We can sin without even realizing it sometimes because of our ignorance uh, of God and his commands. Now, sin is the, covers the whole uh, spectrum, and all sin is against God. David, when he had uh, Uriah the Hittite killed because he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he claims, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And I go, time out, David. There's Bathsheba and there's Uriah. You sinned against them too. (laughs) But all sin is first and foremost a front against God. To sin in the broad sense of the word is to miss the right way or the path that God has for us. It's to go astray. It is to miss the mark. It is to sin. And then we have the second half of verse 7. And it says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, all the way down to a fourth generation. Let me say this. How we raise our children is one of the most critical things that we do in life. It's critical for us and it's critical for our children. Uh, Genesis eighteen nineteen. God talks of Abraham and he says, For I have known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after them, that they keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what God has promised to him. God put a tremendous importance in Abraham's life for him to raise up godly children. Back to verse 7, though, that no clearing of the guilty. You know, we're all guilty before God until we receive his forgiveness. Moses 
has gone through this whole ordeal of interceding on behalf of Israel because of the golden calf thing. And he even asked God, blot out my name from your book of life or forgive the people. God, if you're not willing to forgive the people, then just take my name out of your book of life. But God, he holds the right to blot out whose name he chooses to blot out, declaring, if you choose to remain guilty of your sins before me, i.e., no repentance, then you have to suffer the punishment of sin. And that was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament. But God will clarify his position on a person and owning up to their own sin in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 20. Let me just read it for you. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. God just took away that fourth generation curse of carrying the sin down. Uh, God desires that we raise our children in the knowledge and admonition of him. And to raise our children with a righteous conscience. But each and every person has their own free will. And God will judge each and every person by their own behavior. Whether that be good or whether that be bad. There is this question that arises, well, when does a person become accountable for their sins, i.e., the age of accountability? Well, in the Old Testament, it was 20, if you really want to know what the age of accountability was, because God killed off all this older generation in the wilderness. He let them die off, and only those that were under the age of 20 were allowed to go into the promised land because they weren't held guilty for their sins. They had not reached that age of accountability. Now, I think today that age of accountability probably fluctuates with each and every person to your understanding. I, I hear some of the greatest testimonies that you could hear, and they come out of the mouth of babes. So I think our children sometimes are way ahead of even ourselves in spirituality, and they have a better grip on what is wrong and what is right than we do at times. But Moses admits to God that Israel is a stiff-necked people, but also a people that desire God to pardon their sins, pardon their iniquity. Moses wants God to take on Israel and himself, of course, as his inheritance. The desire by Moses for God to take them on, that's got to please God. God desires to be our father. He desires that we come to him as his children. And it pleases God when Moses wants to be part of God's inheritance. And when I am humble and honest before God, I will admit my flaws and my tendencies to sin. 
but in the next breath, I ask God to not cast me aside. Please don't quit on me, God. <laughs> God demonstrates long-suffering towards us. And each of us have our own testimony there. Even though I am stiff-necked, stubborn, prone to sin, having an incredible me-first attitude, offending you people on a regular basis, and that is just the beginning of my sins. But when I'm there, when I'm repenting, that's when God is pleased with me. I find comfort in people like King David. <laughs> David was ever bit as guilty as King Saul of sin. But David was quick to repent. Saul made excuses. I fully understand, I think, that I'm a bigger threat to society, to one another, when I think I'm doing good spiritually than when I'm repenting. I'm more danger to myself and others when I think I'm doing good than when I'm humble and repenting. It's when we begin to understand that our need of God to pardon our sins that we begin to realize there's hope for us. Let's look at the last... Uh, Verses here, 10 through 14, as far as we'll go today. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant, this is God speaking, before all you people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is moved by compassion when Moses desires to find grace for himself and Israel. God is so moved that he says, I'm going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel, Moses. And God institutes a covenant, an agreement, a treaty, if you will. And God promises to work miracles in Israel which have never been done before. Not for any people on earth. What a promise. Awesome miracles. The old King James calls them terrible miracles. Not as in terrible bad, but terrible in that they just grab your attention. Verse 11 tells us to observe. God says, observe what I command you this day. When God says, observe to us, it's more than seeing with my eyes or understanding. It's 
to observe is to live in harmony with whatever God's laying down. To observe, God wants us to be in harmony with what he's doing. And we all know the story of our patriarch Jacob, how he wrestled with God, how Jacob resisted God, and what God was through and doing through his uncle, and what God was doing through the circumstances in his life, and what God did through the birthright. And Jacob resisted God. But God had good plans for Jacob. But Jacob was an ambitious man, and he wanted that birthright desperately. You know the story. And he even deceived his father to receive the birthright. Plus, Jacob made Esau, his brother, extremely angry toward him to the point that Esau wanted to kill him. But then Jacob finally learned to align himself with God and God's plan. And then Jacob experienced peace and harmony, comfort from God versus wrestling with God. And I think God works in every one of our lives to bring us to that, what I call an aha moment. Aha. (laughs) Where we seem to understand, we get a grip on things. When we come to our senses and know that God has a good plan for us. God's plan for us is much better than our own plan. A plan, a working in our lives in which God wants us to be near him. A plan that sometimes it's so good that it overwhelms us with his goodness. God has promised to do awesome miracles for Israel. You know, when you come into the promised land, even out here in the desert, I'm going to do awesome things for you. God will drive out. He will remove the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Hiphites, and all the otherites. God will take them out. But then God has instructions for Israel in verse 12. He says, don't make covenants with the pagan inhabitants of the land unless these covenants or these treaties that you would make will become a snare to you. Now, what's a snare? A snare is simply an animal trap, usually for birds. And uh, he says, you don't want to make covenants with these nations, these pagan nations. It will be a trap for you. And God gives Moses a command. Destroy their pagan altars. Break down their sacred places of worship and their wooden images. Destroy them. It's pretty harsh. I wonder how that would go over today in our world. Recently, President Obama released his new immigration policy. President Obama declared, we are a nation of immigrants. In the elections that have just gone by, here in Alabama, I heard a congressman that was running for re-election and giving his reasons as to why we are such a great 
nation, why we are such a blessed people. And here's what he basically said. We are great because we are driven by good motives and we're just good people. Wow. To all politicians, I would say we are a great nation because we were founded as a nation under God. Or we at least once were under God. As a nation, as a people, I definitely think we have lost our sense of direction. Again, referring to verse 12, God tells Moses, Israel, be careful, take heed, do not make covenants or treaties with these pagan idol-worshiping people, lest they be a snare to you. Now, snare is, again, it's just a trap. But Moses, you're to be aggressive with these people that are in the land. Destroy their places of worship and their false gods. President Obama rightly said, we are a nation of immigrants. I totally agree with that. But to our shame, we allow these immigrants to bring in their false gods with them. God did not allow it in the Old Testament. In our quest to be non-discriminating, we open our doors to false religions here in America. Even religions that teach hate towards Christians. We say, come on in. You're welcome. So I agree with President Obama. We need immigration reform. But I don't agree with the reform that he suggests. Nor many other politicians. God tells Moses, tear them down. Tear down their altars. Destroy their places of worship. Yet we in America, unfortunately, we embrace many false religions who oppose the living God. Now, I try my best to stay away from politics up here. You seldom, if ever, hear me say anything politically. But God isn't shy. God isn't afraid of public opinion about declaring what our attitude should or should not be towards false gods. It doesn't bother God to say, tear them down, destroy them. Verse 14, God said, you shall worship no other God. That's kind of singular. <laughs> That's kind of limited. He said, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He openly declares he's a jealous God. But know this. Understand this as fellow believers. God's jealousy over us is a good thing. He cares for us, and he knows that he is the best thing for us. And God only wants the best for us, and he wants us to be people of truth. 
And the very best for us, the most wonderful thing in the world for us is our jealous God loving us to the point he loves us. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, we want to pray about our attitude. Lord, we don't want to ever coexist with idols, with false gods. We don't want to ever just consider it a different path. Help us to be wise in our discernment of modern teachings, false teachings that come about through different false religions, Lord. You want a pure people. You're jealous for us, Lord. You want our love committed to you and our ways committed to you. And, Lord, we've learned by experience. We have realized we've been a Christian long enough to understand that we want your best for us. So, God, help us to be wise in our discerning of what is uh, a false religion and what is not a false religion. And Lord, there's so many that want to deceive us, and you keep us. You lead us into truth, God. We look to you, our Lord and our Maker, to keep us in tune with you. So do that good work, Lord. And we would just pray for our nation at the same time, Lord. Lord, help our politicians. Be with our president, Lord as he makes decisions that concern all of us. Be with all of our leaders. Help them to be godly men, making righteous decisions. You tell us to pray for those in authority over us, and we want to be doing that, Lord. So help us, and help those that are in elected positions over us, Lord. So be with us. Lord, we would pray for the uh, Thanksgiving week coming up, that those that are traveling, that you would give them uh, traveling mercies, watch over them, protect them, bring them home safely, Lord. And we just pray for a good holiday. But most of all, Lord, we just pray for a heart that is thankful towards you, for all your goodness towards us. <clears throat> and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.